I, I read an author, uh, one author, he said, um, he said, if you want to see the difference between someone who uh, has assurance and someone who doesn't have assurance, just go to the airport. And he said, there at the airport, you're going to see people who are, uh, uh, who have a ticket that is an official, stamped, approved ticket to get onto their plane, and, and they are relaxed. They know that they are good to go, they know, they know that they're getting on the plane, and they're sleeping, they're, they're taking a nap, they're reading the newspaper, they're watching the news, they're looking at Facebook on their phone, they're relaxed. And then he said, take a look at the people who are on standby. Now these folks are not so relaxed. They're near the, standing near the counter, and they're looking at their watch, and they're sweating, and they're pacing up and down, and they get on their phone, and they call their friend who might pick them up if they actually land in an hour or two, but they're not sure, and so they're telling them the status, and the status is, I still don't know. Panic versus confidence in our assurance. Question for you. Are you sure that you are saved this morning? Are you sure that you are saved this morning? This is the, one of the primary reasons John wrote this letter to his friends. Because he loves them and he wants them to be sure that they are in Christ. So how then might we be sure that we are in Christ? Well, many of us would love to say, well, it's just about the three or four things that I'm to, to believe, as if we have a mental checklist. And so if I believe these things, are you, do you know you're a Christian? Yeah, why? Well, it's because I believe this, and I believe this, and I believe that. And some pastor years ago told me that if I believe these three or four things, then therefore I'm saved. So I'm, I'm saved because of this mental checklist. And, and I say some of us would like to believe that that is where we find our assurance because what that does is it allows us then to live our lives in self-indulgence. To be driven by our feelings, to essentially live like anybody else in the world lives. The only difference is we believe a little differently about three or four things. John wants you to know, and I would say God through John wants you to know, that we don't find our assurance in a mental checklist alone. But rather, we find our assurance in right belief. I don't want to minimize that. We're going to talk about that. And in our right actions toward each other. Now, 1 John chapter 4, verse 1 Look at your text with me here as I kind of talk through this a bit. Through 21, so meaning the whole chapter here. This chapter, it's really kind of the, the, it's the height of, of John's point. One, one theologian actually said this is the high water mark of John's entire epistle. Now, initially, I, I, I did some very poor planning, all right? I thought a couple weeks ago I was going to preach this entire chapter in one sermon. And so then a couple weeks ago I looked at him like, well, I got it, man, I don't know if I can do it. So I'm going to just stick with 1 through 6. I'm going to preach that. And then I'm going to do 7 through 21. I'll do that next week. And then I got to that one. I'm like, oh, man. 
I don't know if I can do all of those. There's just so much there. So I broke that down. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to just preach 7 through 12, and then I'll cover 13 through 21 next week. Well, I come to this week, and, and I was to cover 13 through 21, and as I'm wrapping things up in my studies this past week, I realized, like, there's just too much here. I've got to break this down. I've got to just cover 13 through 16. And I'll do 17 through 21 next week. Now, hopefully, I think we will get to the end of chapter 4 by next week. But no promises, okay? But this is indeed the height of John's epistle. This is the high watermark. This is, this is the peak of it all. Because what we see here is, is this theological and practical summary of all that John is saying. And I think it's summarized, actually, in verse 12. Let me remind you of what verse 12 says, which we covered last week. It says, no one has ever seen God. If we love one another, God abides in us, and his love is perfected in us. Now, verses 13 through 16 cover that first thing that we see when we love, and that is we see that God lives in us. And then verses 17 through 21, which we'll cover next week, as, God, as, we, as we love God and as God uh, loves us, we therefore have his love completed, completed in us. And so we see these two, these two things, I don't know what else to call them, <laughs> that, are, that are demonstrations of our love for God. When we love God and then we love other people, what that shows are these two things. And that is first, that God lives with us, and secondly, that his love is perfected in us. But as I was studying this, I was wrestling this week with this concept that we must love each other to show our love for the unseen God. This is what John is saying. He's saying, you can't see God, right? It's easy to say, I love God. We, anybody can say, I love God. How do you prove that? Because you can't see him. So you can't physically do things for him in the flesh, because we can't see it. So how do we, what is our gauge? We need a gauge to, to know that we actually love God, to, to have assurance. And he says that gauge then is to love the people that you can see. Question, why is that the gauge? Why, why is it that I know my love for God or my lack thereof based on how I love others around me, particularly the saints in God's church? Well, it's simple. If I were to go away to California with my wife for, for a, a, a couple weeks, and we left our kids with you, and maybe you don't even know our kids, but you know us, all right? But now we're gone. You can't see us, all right? But you see our kids. Now, how do you show love for me when you have my kids entrusted to you? Well, you say, child, I respect your father, but not you. <laughs> you are another story. <laughs> you show your respect for me as you respect my children. You show my, your love for me as you love those who are my representatives right in front of your face. Does that make sense? 
In the Bible, we are called the children of God. In the Bible, we are called the bride of Christ. In the Bible, we are called the body of Christ, meaning the church, we, brothers and sisters in Christ, the saints, we are the representation of God in this world. So therefore, you show your love or lack thereof for God as you love the people of God who you can see. Are you tracking with John? I'm just giving you John's logic here. And so then we're going to dig in then to this idea that loving others shows that God lives in us. Let me get back to this concept of assurance really quick. Because that's really what we're talking about is assurance, knowing that we are in Christ. We know we're in Christ when we love each other because that shows us that God lives with us. In these verses, verses 13 through 16, we see this idea, it's repeated three times actually, that God lives in us. It's reciprocal, actually. God lives in us, and we live in God. God abides in him, and he in God. Verse 16, those who love God abide in love. God abides in him, and they abide in God. The fact that God lives in us is not just some kind of like theological doctrine that we must know. It's something that actually has an effect on us. The fact that God has taken up his dwelling place with us, his people, what that means is it actually produces some kind of tangible change in our lives. And that's what we see here in this text. So how do we know, church, that God lives in us? Let me just show you two things that John points out in this text so that you might have the assurance that God lives in you. The first point is this. Number one, we know God lives in us as we live in truth. We know God lives in us as we live in truth. Let me illustrate this point before I dig it out of the scriptures here for you. Um, A couple of us, we're going to Scotland in 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 a few weeks to visit a ministry there. And thinking of this concept of truth, it got me to thinking, how do I know Scotland even exists? Never been there? Montreal, what if we show up in Scotland and it doesn't exist? Like, yeah, well, they're, they're not going to give you a refund because the, 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 these plane companies, you know, they're, they're selling these tickets to places that don't even exist. How do we know that Scotland exists? I've never experienced Scotland before. So in early November, when I go to Scotland, how do I know? How can I tell you today I'm going to Scotland when I don't know it exists? 
Well, I do know Scotland exists. How do I know that if I haven't been there and seen it with my own eyes? C.S. Lewis calls this kind of knowledge knowledge based on authority or knowledge on authority, which means we know something to be true because we've been told it by an authority. And so I could say then, growing up and hearing a number of authorities in my life have confirmed for me that a place called Scotland actually exists, and I can describe it to you even though I've never been there, with a good bit of confidence. Lewis, C.S. Lewis goes on to, to, to speculate that 99% of everything we know is, is this kind of knowledge, knowledge based on authority. Meaning if you think you have to ex- physically experience absolutely everything in order to know its truthfulness, C.S. Lewis says you will know nothing in your, in your life. <laughs> we receive knowledge based on an authority that, that we trust. This is just one of those mornings, isn't it? Microphones, guitars falling all over the place. The, 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 the devil is in this place. Amen. <laughs> He's trying to rob Montrell of his worship. <laughs> Thank you, Jess. How do we know the truth of Jesus Christ? We haven't seen him, right? We weren't there 2,000 years ago when he died on the cross. We didn't physically see his resurrection. How do we know? Well, it's, it's kind of knowledge. It's a knowledge of authority. We know because we've been told it by an authority. Now, this is what John does. John shows us sort of this three-stage process in which we come to know Jesus Christ. Look at verse 13. First, the first stage is that we've been given the Spirit of God. The second stage in verse 14 is that we have the apostolic testimony. And the third stage is our own confession as the Holy Spirit confirms that the testimony is true. Let me break that down for you. Stage number one, we have been given in verse 13 the Holy Spirit. Now the Holy Spirit is the main character in this whole text. The Holy Spirit has taken up his residence with us. The Holy Spirit has taken us from death to life, from unbelief to belief. Now, and this is an important, uh, important to know in a world which confuses the role and the work of the Holy Spirit. So often, many professing Christians think of the Holy Spirit as some kind of magical force of God who causes you to do crazy things. But the Holy Spirit is so much more than a magical force, the third person of the Trinity. God, who has come to live in us, to turn the lights on, to wake us up, to regenerate us so that we might see Christ. And that leads us to the second stage, and that is the apostolic testimony. So look at verse 14. He says, we have seen and testify that the Father sent the Son to be the Savior of the world. I wonder who the we is right there. I believe that we is the apostles. I think he's talking about us personally who saw Jesus Christ, meaning the eyewitnesses. They were there when Jesus Christ was baptized, and they heard the voice that came out of, uh, of heaven which said, this is my son 
in whom I am well pleased. They were there when Jesus died on the cross. They saw him die, and they were the eyewitnesses to his resurrection three days later. And they were with him for 40 days as he trained them, and they saw him ascend to the Father's right hand as he commissioned them to go into all of the world and preach the gospel. We have seen it. This is our authority, our human authority, if you would. That Christ was among us. And not that he just existed, but that he is the Savior of the world. We have seen it, and we, are, we have testified to it. That he is the Savior of the world. That means he is the only Savior the world has. It means if you deny Jesus Christ, no matter who you are, no matter what your background is, no matter where you come from, if you deny Jesus Christ, you deny the only Savior. He is the Savior not only of the Jews, but of the Gentiles. He's the Savior of every single person in the entire globe. He is their only option. Are you guys tracking with me? He's all the world has. And they've seen it, and they have testified to it. This is why church, this is why we as a church family appreciate a lot of authors and a lot of different books, but we only preach the Bible. It's because this is the apostolic testimony. This is the word that God has revealed to us for our growth and for our edification so that we might see and know him. And in this, we find a true authority that we read. Now, moving on, the third stage is that we confess it as truth. He says in verse 15, whoever confesses that Jesus is the Son of God, God abides in him. God abides in him. We're connecting that back with the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit comes to us, abides in us, and then confirms the testimony of the apostles as we hear it. And we confess, which means we say the same as. We confess who Jesus is. And the, 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 the title he gives us here is that Jesus is the Son of God. Now, this doesn't mean that we can reduce the confession to those three words, as if you can just simply say, hey, Jesus is the Son of God. Good to go. No, it means much more. That, that title means it, it includes the whole of the gospel, our own sinfulness, our own need to repent, our own need to confess Jesus as Lord of our life and his entire death, burial, resurrection, his work for us on our behalf, clinging to him as God of God and light of light, our only hope in this world. Now, if we confess that, so it's one thing to hear the apostolic testimony of Jesus But if we say the same thing, which means we take that truth and say, that's my truth. It's not just the truth for the apostles. It's not just the eyewitnesses who get it, but I get it as well. That's what confession means. This is true for me. Now, if we confess the truth of Jesus Christ, what he says is it means that God abides in us. 
Meaning the Holy Spirit has confirmed that the apostolic truth is indeed true. I could go on all day about historical evidence and reasons that you ought to believe that the Bible is credible and the story of Jesus is credible. But it's only the Holy Spirit in our life that can truly confirm that for us. Does that make sense? Which means if, you are, if, if the lights have been turned on for you, when you read the Bible and when you hear the proclamation of Christ, there's something in you that says, yes, this is true. This is true for me. This is my truth. That is the very fact that God abides in you. If you're not a Christian with us today, and you're hearing these things, and, and you're hearing of this truth of Jesus Christ, the Savior of the world, the one who has died in your place so that you might have life, taking on your sin on the cross, bearing the wrath of God on your behalf, rising from the dead three days later, giving you the promise of life and forgiveness. If you hear that, and, and, and that rings as truth, in your life. Well, that is a sign that the Holy Spirit is working in you. It's a sign that you're a Christian. Do you confess these things as true? So that is the first way that we know that God lives in us is if we confess these things because we otherwise would not. Now, all of this so far reminds us of our belief test, if you remember the belief test some chapters ago, which we'll get into in the next couple weeks. But you might say, if you're following along closely, you might say, Joel, I thought we were talking about love. I thought we were talking about loving each other. I didn't know we were going back into the belief test of who do you say Jesus is. I thought we were talking about our expression of love for one another. Well, my answer is, is we are, and John is. But what John is doing, and I think this is so interesting, and this is why I had to kind of reduce the number of verses I was going to be preaching on this week, and I wanted to root in on this. What John is doing is he's showing us that we cannot separate our belief of who we say Jesus is from our practice of love for each other. How can you just talk about one or the other? You can't. Right belief for John and for God, for us, leads to right action. And so in verse 16, he says, So we have come to know and believe the love that God has for us. You see how he's drawing it right back to love? What John is saying is there's no Christ the, the Spirit has come. you got the apostolic testimony of his life death, life, death, burial, and resurrection. The Spirit confirms that. And so, therefore, church, you know love. You know the love of God. And then he repeats himself. Just in case we forgot, he says, God is love. Come on, say that with me. God is love, which means Everything about God is shaped by his love. There is nothing that God does in this world 
that is not defined and shaped by his love. Now, if God is shaped by his love and everything he does is an expression of love, then what that means for us as his people, as his representatives, is that we too ought to be shaped by what? Love. So everything we do in this world, all of our interactions with each other, the way we spend our our 40, 50 hours a week at the job, the way that we look at our spouse and our kids and our roommate, the way we think of people in the church, all of our actions are to be shaped by God's love in us and through us for each other. And so that leads us to our second point. And that is this, God, I'm sorry, we know God lives in us as we live in love. We know God lives in us as we live in truth, point number one. We know God lives in us as we live in love, point number two. Charles Spurgeon once said that 98% of the people that he speaks with, including all of the prisoners in England, believe that the Bible is true. But he says the problem is they've never made a personal life-changing commitment to Jesus Christ. And he said for them, belief is not an active verb. It's just merely a mental assent. But for Christians, belief in Jesus Christ is to recognize the love of Jesus Christ, which transforms us, fills us, changes us. And we then know that God lives in us as we live in love. We've come to know, verse 16, we've come to know, to believe the love that God has for us. God is love. God is love. And then he says, whoever abides in love, abides in God. That word abide means to take up residence, to dwell, to move in. What he's saying is, is that love for the believer is is an active and, and very present position of our entire life. The gospel, the testimony of Christ, has essentially moved us out of our old neighborhood of selfishness and moved us into the new neighborhood of selflessness. We've walked away from our old life of living according to our own desires and wants and feelings. And we've moved into a new life of delighting in meeting the needs of other people. And we take up residence there. That's why I'm using the word neighborhood to paint a picture for you. We're abiding now in a neighborhood called genuine love. That's where we live. That's where we eat. That's where we sleep. That's where we hang. We abide in love. Meaning we don't just simply try to do acts of love, but we live lives of love. Are you tracking with me? 
Let me read you verse 16 once again. We've come to know and to believe that, that the love that God has for us, God is love. And whoever abides in love abides in God. And God abides in him. We know that God lives in us. We know that God has taken up residence in our lives as we live in love. That is where we find our assurance. Now, what does that look like? Let me give you a a couple points here as to what it looks like from the scriptures to, to, to live in love, to abide in this posture. Number one, abiding in love means that we abide in Christ. Abiding in love means that we abide in Christ. That's what we're seeing here in this text. That we live in Christ, and so therefore we live in love. Now, why is that, the true, why is that true for us? Well, it's simple. God gave his people, prior to Christ, a law, which we call the Mosaic Law. And the Mosaic Law has a whole lot of bullet points. There's a lot of laws in there. But it is all framed by the the requirement that we are to love each other. So all of the laws of restitution, all of the laws of punishment, everything in there is about our love for God and for each other. Now the problem is, as we talked about in our Sunday school class this morning on Hebrews, the problem is, is that we kept, as God's people, Israel, we kept failing to uphold the standards of the law. We kept breaking the law. Jesus Christ comes and he perfectly fulfills the law, which means he never once had an ounce of selfishness in him. He was always present with those around him. He was always loving and serving those around him. Living outside of himself for the good of others. Jesus healed the leper. Jesus raised the dead. Jesus taught us how to love. He showed us how to love. And Jesus went to the cross, the ultimate expression of God's love for us. And he died in our place, giving of his very own life for your life so that you might live, rising for us, an expression of his love, ascending to be with the Father, to sit at the right hand, to plead our case before God, an expression of his love, and now we, as we receive the Holy Spirit and abide, the Holy Spirit takes up residence in us, what that means is, is that we then abide in Christ. Which means, like I've already said, we don't separate our love for each other from our understanding and belief and doctrine about who Jesus Christ is. We've got to get Christ right if we're going to love rightly. Don't believe that you can divorce yourself of Jesus and live a life of genuine love. We live in love as we abide in Christ. Secondly, we love those in our church. Love those people in your church. Now, someone says, wait a second, aren't we supposed to love everybody? Yes, we are. We are to love everybody. Like generally, like 
everyone. We are to be people of love in the communities around us. People who meet needs. But we are specifically called to love the brothers and sisters in Jesus Christ, and that's the language that John is using, which means our very our, our, our greatest practice of love is as we love one another. Jesus himself said, they will know that you are mine by the way that you love one another. They will know, let's think of it, Everybody lives in Pedestal Gardens and McCullough Street and Druid Hill and Division and Pennsylvania Avenue and Reservoir Hill. Like everybody who peeks in here, they will know that we are Christians in the way that you love each other. Think about that. That's what Jesus said. We love each other. We're called to love those within our church. Now just as an example of this, we have a, a benevolence ministry in our church. Now, we use our benevolence ministry to try to meet the needs of people who are not Christians, people who are not part of our church when and where possible. But the reality is, is that our benevolence ministry is limited and there's no way we can meet all of the physical needs in Baltimore City. But we must meet all of the needs in the Garden Church. Do you see that? So we love everyone generally, but particularly, we must make sure that there is nobody in this room that is going to bed hungry tonight, that doesn't have a roof over their head, as it gets cold, that doesn't have adequate warmth. Like We need to make sure that there are no needs, being, like real needs, all right, being unmet within our church. And that is one way in which we love each other. And that is a call, a, a demonstration of the light of God to the world around us. This is a different kind of community. And yes, and we also meet the needs of others. I love the stories of the early church. I love reading the old church histories. And one story I love in particular is as the Black Plague swept through and as many people were, were dying, uh, what, what angered the pagans was that the Christians were not only caring for and, and loving and serving uh, all of their own, but he, they said that they are also caring for and loving and serving ours. What if the world said that of us? That, that there is nobody in the garden church that goes without a, a need being met. And they even love us. They will know we are Christians by our what? By our love. I think I saw a glimpse of this actually when Montrell's brain kind of, you know, the thing. I don't even know what to call it. What are we calling it? Uh, Explosion. Um, And so uh, show up and like night, you know, he's taken to the hospital and so... I'm there, and, and uh, Amanda and, and uh, Nick were there, and I, Eric showed up, and maybe a couple others. I don't remember, remember who all was there, but I just remember thinking, like, man, this is, um, this is the church right here, weeping with those who weep, right, rejoicing with those who rejoice. And then as Montreux was moved to a, another floor, they actually put him in a, in a specific room because of all of his visitors that come, and they know that, I know the kind of people that come, you know, and, and, and his visitors were called beautiful people, now, I just wonder if what they're seeing in this, you know, kind of weird, like, mix of diverse people coming, hanging out with Montreal, doing our thing. 
I, I just wonder if what they see is more than just human love. But I wonder if they see, even though they can't quite name it, they see a glimpse of the love of Jesus Christ in our midst as we express that toward one another. So we love those within our church. Thirdly, we do not limit our abilities to love based on our personality or life stage. We do not limit. This is a call to all Christians everywhere. Not just to those who have the additional time and resources, not just to the extroverts. This is a call to all Christians everywhere. Not limited by our personality or our life, life stage. So, for example, often when I talk about extending ourselves and spending time and loving each other, I, I usually will get an email from a, 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 a concerned introvert saying, Joel, you know, I appreciate the talk, but whoo, <laughs> you know, like, <laughs> that's how the email goes. Um, uh, and then something about, like, emotional capacity and, and uh, time and, and, and I get it. Like, I have, like, occasional introversion, introversion. can we use that word? Um, myself. And, uh, and so let me just give a, a, a word to those of us who sometimes feel like we just don't have the emotional capacity to love others. We don't have, we, I don't have it in me to be able to extend myself. Or I'm looking at the time and I'm looking at my calendar and I literally just don't have that kind of time if I'm, gonna, if I'm going to keep my job and take care of things at home. Well, let me just encourage you with something. He doesn't say that there is a certain quota. There's not a number of people uh, that you are supposed to love in order to be a good Christian. You know, for some people, this might be 100. Others, it might be two. But the call is to love. Meaning, when you do interact with somebody, how do you do that? Meaning, just love the people that you're already interacting with the people that you're already coming across. So as you come to church on Sunday and before the service and after the service, do people know that you're, you love them? As you have an opportunity to listen to someone, do, does that person feel and know that you love them or do they feel like you're distracted thinking about something else? People in your community group, opportunity to love. Start at home. Marriage is a great place to practice love. And then single folks say, well, what if I'm not married? Let me say something about singles and love. I think sometimes the, the, pro, the, the language we use is problematic. So I've heard people ask this question. Usually it's like a nosy married person. They'll say to a single saint, they'll say, They'll say, hey, any love in your life lately? And then the single uh, woman or man might respond, no, nah, I don't have much of a love life. That language is problematic. Because 1 Corinthians says that singles have more ability to love than married people do. Like a greater love life. I love the singles in our church as I watch them just sort of channel all of that energy to love and then just kind of like disseminate it and spray it like all widely over people as they, as they love others sacrificially meeting needs caring for, for others it's beautiful 
Kids, this isn't just limited to adults. Kids, don't wait. I need to get the kids' attention for a second. Everybody stop drawing for, for a moment. All right. Kids, don't wait until you grow up to start loving. Practice love now. And what that means is, is we practice putting our own wants aside and living for the needs of other people. Does that make sense? Man, if we practice this, don't, don't you all adults wish that you practiced that when you were young? It'd be a whole lot easier to get it today if we got it when we were 10. When all we, the only two words we knew were, I want. Yeah, those are still the only two words we know. We've just, we just say it in ways that, uh, I guess we, ha- we actually have actually learned more language. We say it in nicer ways. <laughs> but we're called away from our selfishness. And we're called to live a life of selfless devotion to others. And lastly, as, as far as what love looks like, the greatest way, the greatest way that we might love others is that they might know Jesus Christ. Jesus Christ is supreme in this text. We, we are to create a culture of discipleship in this church, and that would be the greatest expression of love for each other where Christ ends up at the center of all of our thinking and conversations as a church. When we have a personal issue with somebody else, the first thought we have is, what would Christ do? What does it look like to be Christ in this situation? Alistair Begg said to his church, he says this regularly to his church, he says, you'll know that I stopped loving you when I stopped preparing good biblical sermons. One of the ways that we, uh, those of us who are teachers in this church, can love is to try to work hard to prepare biblical stuff. And I want to encourage you guys to turn that toward one another. If you're preparing to lead a Bible study, you're preparing to sit down with somebody and and do some one-on-one discipleship, prepare. (laughs) Get ready for that. And think, how can I use this time to build up my brother or sister in Christ. As a church, we will know we stop loving each other when we turn our heads to sin. When we just ignore sin in our midst and look the other way. We know that we will stop loving each other when we, when we allow those brothers and sisters in our church to just simply remain in their guilt. We know that we, we stop loving each other when we, when we see each other, only when it's convenient for me, for you. We know that we love one another when we lovingly, gently confront sin as we see it in a way that is restorative, in a way that is pure and patient. We know that we love one another as we encourage those who are lying in their guilt and remind them of the gospel of Jesus Christ. I cannot talk about love without talking about multicultural expressions of our love. We must reach across lines. 
We don't just simply love those who uh, we feel comfortable around, who we grew up with, the the faces that most uh, remind us of our parents. No, we, we, we live in love across lines. Like, you might not talk about it so much, but you live it. You know what gets me sometimes is, uh, let me just say this really quick, all right? I'm going to go on a little one-minute rant, and then we're going to close. What gets me sometimes is when I say, see, particularly white people who go on and on about Black Lives Matter, and they don't have one black friend in their life, and all they do is hang out in white spaces. No, let's stop talking and start living as if black lives matter. Let's start living as if minorities matter. Let's start living as if white people, let's, start, let's, let's love one another. Let's, let's cross all of the lines that the community, has, uh, that the world has placed. And let's say, no, we are, we are not content with only loving people that make me feel comfortable. But we must love. How do we love our lost friends? We love our lost friends through meeting needs, through being people of justice. And we love our lost friends primarily as we point them to Jesus Christ. As we lift up Christ. And friends, when one of your lost friends does come to Jesus Christ, you know what they will say about you? This person loved me. This person loved me. Let us love each other. They will know that we are Christians, according to John 13, by our love. Not by our fine doctrine, not by the number of books we read, not by the kinds of church buildings we can build. They will know we are Christians by the fact that our pastor drives a Mercedes. No! (laughs) They will know we are Christians by our love for one another. And so church, let us love. These are are not conditions that we might uh, bring God to us, but rather these are expressions of the fact that God is with us. We are born blind and we are born selfish. The only way that you can confess that Jesus Christ is the Son of God is because your eyes have been opened. And the only reason that you can love with a selfless kind of love is because Christ abides in you. So I pray this morning that you are encouraged in your assurance. Amen? Father, we ask that you would help us, come to us. We are weak. You are strong. We pray, God, that we would be a community of love, confessing Jesus Christ as the Son of God, living in truth. We pray that that truth would move us into a life of love for one another. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.